Welcome to Mies Tech Missions Podcast. This is Jake, and today I want to talk to you about discipleship issues that we face in discipling our new Mies Tech believers. The, the problem that we face oftentimes is that, uh, as you've heard me share in other podcasts, that we often have uh, disciple-making strategies based upon our worldview. Like, like we want to teach people to to follow Christ in the way that we were taught. And that's understandable, but when you're a cross-cultural worker, that's problematic because oftentimes you uh, don't realize that the things that you're doing are culturally prescribed to you. They seem normal to you because they're normal in your, in your culture based upon your worldview. For instance, when, when I throw out the word discipleship, what does that mean to you? Like, for some people, that means a program uh, that that happens in the church, the church's discipleship program. Often that is synonymous with the church education program, Sunday school, life groups, things like that. Even in our seminaries, discipleship courses are housed in the schools of education because for, really, for most of us, discipleship is based upon growing in knowledge. Like, and that does not to say that there's not an element of knowledge, the transmission of knowledge that goes on during discipleship, but it is very reflective of our culture, the value that we place upon knowledge and education, and that we would conclude that discipleship is best understood as Christian education. Therefore, it is uh, overseen by the minister of education and churches and, and housed in the schools of education in Christian schools and seminaries. But for others, the word discipleship has a different meaning. And I would say maybe even a more biblical meaning in that it is not just the transmission of knowledge or content from one person or another, but it's more, more accurately described as the, the transmission of a life. And this is where even in our culture there is a big debate. Orthodoxy uh, or orthopraxy, right belief or right living. What is most important for a Christian? And I would say yes. Like, do you think Jesus is going to say you can you can believe something that's untrue and be a good follower of me, a mature follower of me? Well, absolutely not. Or do you think that Jesus would say, yes, you believe all the right stuff, but your life's in shambles and it looks nothing like mine? Like, for us to just reduce discipleship into orthodoxy and orthopraxy to the neglect of the other is kind of really reductionistic and foolish. Like the life of Christ. Now, th- this is really what discipleship is, the, 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 the transmission of the life of Christ into another person. Like we are invited to, to be like Christ in all ways, in, in our thoughts, in our affections, in our volitions, the way that we speak and the way that we act, the way that we live, the things that we value, where we spend our time, how we spend our time, the things that we are committed to. Like we want to be like Christ in every way possible for a human being to be like Christ. Like that's discipleship. Like I want to learn to be like Jesus. And so I want to believe truth because Jesus is truth and he teaches us right belief. Like you can't just say that right belief is unimportant and think that Jesus would agree with that. Like he is the way, the truth and the life and and the father is looking for true worshipers who who will worship him in spirit and truth. Even the suggestion that uh, orthopraxy 
is more important than orthodoxy is a suggestion that we should believe that orthodoxy is not as important as orthopraxy. Like it is already a propositional truth statement making a suggestion that I should believe that statement. And so you can't get away from the fact that that orthodoxy is essential for discipleship. And the, the problem that I, that, I, that I see, however, is discipleship, when it's considered Christian education, housed in under the school of education and, and practiced in uh, the churches as the Sunday school or life group or home group ministry, primarily is information. It's really just Christian education. And I would suggest that that is an aspect of discipleship. And the church that limits discipleship to the transmission of information, essentially just saying that it is not our mission, but it is an, an, uh, a department of overseen by one of the staff members of our church, housed not in the school of theology nor in the school of missions, but in the, the school of education, is a reflection on our value that orthodoxy is is the main thing in discipleship, not one of the things of discipleship. And I would just suggest that that's just really reductionistic. Like, can you just believe the right stuff and not follow Jesus? Like, live like him? Well, absolutely not. And so right, right belief and right practice are two aspects of discipleship, and I would really submit to you what I believe is the most important, and that is right-heartedness. Like, a true disciple loves what Jesus loves. Like, Jesus loves the Father. Jesus loves people. In fact, he summarizes the great uh, commandment this way. It is to love the Father with all of our being, and to love others as we love ourselves. Like, everything else is it depends upon that. Like, who cares how much you know if you don't love God and love people? Like, who cares how much action you do, social action, social justice, mercy ministries, missions, if you don't love God and love people? Like, that is the, the foundation of right belief. Like, I want to believe correctly because that helps me love God correctly and love others correctly. I want to serve and live correctly because that helps me love God correctly and love people correctly. Like, that is the heart of the matter. And so discipleship in general needs to be not just reduced to a program, not just reduced to a curriculum, not just be something that our church does. It should be the thing that we do, but it should be all-encompassing of education and mission, if it's really discipleship. Otherwise, we've separated biblical discipleship out, and now we have a cultural understanding of this great biblical truth. Like, if the Great Commission is go and make disciples, well, then... You need to know what a disciple is and not just reduce it to a cultural understanding of what you think a disciple is. Like for me and my experience pastoring and, and, and church planning, oftentimes a disciple is most often understood by the people as a good Christian. Like what does that mean? 
Well, even that term, well, he or she is a good Christian, often has uh, within it some implied meaning that, well, perhaps that means that they know a lot about the Bible, or perhaps it means they avoid all of the big sins, or perhaps it means that they are a church member that gives, or perhaps it means that they're involved in certain community ministries. But it certainly doesn't always mean that that person looks and acts and speaks like Jesus. Like one of the things that I love about the church in Antioch, in, in, in Acts chapter 11, like as a form of derision, the people of Antioch called the followers of Jesus, which had previously all throughout the book of Acts, all through the Gospels, been identified as disciples, they began to call them Christians as a term of derision to insult them because they looked and act and lived their lives so much like Jesus Christ that they used the term Christian to make fun of them. Oh, you look at those little Christians. Like that, that, that the term disciple... The, the, these disciples lived like Christ. The people saw and heard Christ in them. And like that is the best, I think, understanding of the term disciple is, man, people look at you and they go, wow, I see Christ. They listen to you and they say, wow, that sounds like the voice of Christ. They, they watch the way that you serve and go, wow, that's the way Christ serves. They watch the way you teach and go, wow, that's the way Christ teaches. They, 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 they know what you believe and go, wow, that's what Christ believes. They, they hear what you speak and go, that's the way Christ speaks and that's the way Christ serves and that's the way Christ loves. And that's, that reminds me of Christ. And that's being a disciple. Like to, to limit it to anything else is to miss the point of what it means to be a disciple. To be like Jesus, to love like Jesus. And then we have disciple making, not just disciple and disciple, but disciple maker. And that's what we are, and that's what we're training our people to be. And that is now we want them to help their people become these kinds of people, these Christian people. And so, what does that mean? Well, for us, we've had to identify a lot of the things that we bring to the table table based upon uh, just our experiences and our education. And to the degree to which you and I are able to objectively, honestly, in a position of humility, I evaluate, identify and evaluate our opinions on discipleship and disciple making, and the things that we bring to the table based upon not necessarily uh, scripture, but our worldview, that is the degree to which we will be able to successfully eliminate things that are not helpful when you're making cross-cultural disciples. Now, the, the issue that we run into when we're not, when we're not objectively evaluating our, our disciple-making strategies is we, we run the risk of trying to reproduce things in this culture, uh, discipleship strategies that aren't effective. For like what? Well, because of our uh, theological persuasion and cultural worldview, the, the values that we place upon literacy, and education, 
many times cross-cultural workers will will determine that to best make a, a disciple, I need to have a curriculum. And they need to read that curriculum. And they need to fill in the blanks. And at the end of the conclusion of this curriculum, they will graduate. And they're officially a disciple. Like, that's a simplified version. But you know what? I've heard that here on my experiences in the field. Like, like, let's just, what curriculum are you teaching them? And I look at them and go, what curriculum did Jesus use? Like, did Jesus run out to Lifeway and find the latest uh, workbook and, and sit down at a coffee shop and work through the workbook with somebody? Like, I'm not making, like, Jesus would meet people in 21st century America where they're at, and that might be going to Lifeway and getting a workbook and, and, and sitting down at Starbucks with them and working through them with that. that. I'm not making fun of that. What I'm saying is that is our mentality that discipleship is a curriculum. And Jesus' curriculum was his life. That's his book. My life is the book. My life is what I'm teaching. I want them to learn how to live like me. And so his curriculum was not something that could be purchased, but it was something that could be studied, and that was his life. His classroom, and you said it could be Starbucks, or it could be a living room, or it could be a classroom at the church, or whatever it would be, but his classroom was the world, and he lived life with his people, and as he was living life with his followers, he would teach them based upon the things that came up. And so many cross-cultural workers come to this context and go, but I don't know what to teach them because you haven't given me any kind of curriculum, and we don't have a, a, a set time and a set place, and, and, and it doesn't look like the, the, the discipleship strategies that I learned back at home, and, and so I, I don't know what to do, and I'm, I'm like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, and, and look at how he made disciples, and do that. Like, you know the word, and as you're going through life, living with them, working with them, serving with them, visiting them, as conversation leads and as situations dictate, pull out of the great wealth of knowledge that you have from the discipleship strategies that you were raised with that were so focused on word-based study, education, pull from that wealth of resource and teach them. Like this, like this reminds me of a story that I heard, or this reminds me of something that Paul said, or, or this is, reminds me of something in the Old Testament. Or look at the, just look at the situation and listen. And, 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 and my goodness, you're being a disciple because you're teaching like Jesus taught when you do that. We, le- we lean into their learning styles. We lean into their natural spiritual rhythms. Like to, to, to feel like we have to m- meet somewhere and go through a curriculum is, is not biblical. Can I suggest that? And certainly not culturally reflective. Like we've got to be better disciple makers if we want to be good disciples like Jesus uh, of Jesus, we need to be better disciple makers like Jesus. And that means probably less focused on literate means of education. 
not necessarily just focused on transmission of information. Like you don't have to get uh, Paul's missionary journey lined out and all of the minor prophets listed by name and what kingdoms they served under and all of that for that person, especially that Mistech believer, to be like Jesus in their culture. Not to say that none of that's important. What I'm saying is, if Jesus didn't make a big deal about that, if if the if the apostles didn't make a big deal about that, then maybe we shouldn't. Like, think about the Great Commission. Like, you might think I'm way off on this, but even like the Great Commission, Jesus lays it out for us. Like, go make disciples. Obviously, that is that is the imperative of 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 Matthew 28. Go make disciples. How? Baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Not like teaching them all the information of Scripture. Like like just by filling their brains as like sponges with water, filling them up with lots of information, then uh, all of a sudden they're like Jesus. No, he's like, if you're going to, my disciples obey me. So really discipleship is, is not just information-based, education-based, knowledge-based, what many people say, knowledge-based discipleship, but rather it is obedience-based discipleship like teaching them to obey teaching them to be like jesus and so discipleship issues that we run into is how do we teach them to be like jesus in this culture like the first question i i i have to ask is what does a mistek disciple even look like like what would jesus look like as a 21st century mistek man like, how, how would he live? How would he speak? Where would he go? How would he spend money? How would he serve? How would he teach? Like, that's really what we're looking at. Now, unfortunately, my experience with Mistec Christians that have not been discipled well is that their opinion of a, a Mistec disciple is someone who doesn't go to the fiestas, someone who doesn't go to the witch doctors, and someone who doesn't drink and someone who goes to church three times a week. Like, that's their understanding of a, of a disciple. Like, legalism, 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 legalism. Like, stop doing bad stuff and start doing religious stuff. And that means now you're qualified to be a pastor of a church because you don't go to the witch doctor and you don't beat your wife and you're no longer an alcoholic and you don't support the fiestas. Like those things are all good and we want our believers to not do those things. But shouldn't discipleship be even more than just not doing bad things? Like that goes back to even our understanding of, of well, that person is a good Christian. What does that even mean? It means, well, they're, they're a member and they don't do bad things and they give money and they, know, they can maybe teach a Sunday school class. And, but do they love Jesus? Do they love the world? Are they making disciples? Like, the issues that we run into here are a little bit different, but yet they're kind of the same. Like, one of the things that we've run into is what about images and idols? Like, like most Americans, I've never met an American family that had an idol in their house. I, I know it exists. And we've tried to spiritualize different things and, 
you know, your idols or anything that takes the place of God in your life. And it could be your career. It could be finances. It could be children, all those kind of things. And yes, that's true. Like, but in this culture, idol's an idol. Like, it's a real image that they bow down to, that they pray to, that they worship, that they give offerings to, that they, they think hears them and answers their prayers. Like, it's a real thing. Like, idolatry is a real thing. What, what do I do? Well, I, when I'm asked, I, I tell them what Scripture says. Like, and then I'll let the Holy Spirit do his work. Like, I can't convict them of that sin. I can teach them what the Word says, but I can't make them believe that. But you know what happens? I'll come in a month later after teaching about what, you know, they'll ask me, what is, what is the Bible? Should I have that? And I'll be like, well, this is what the Bible says. If you believe the Bible, then obey it. And I'll leave it. And I'll come back a month later and, well, the idol is gone. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, I uh, decided to take it down because the Holy Spirit convicted me that that wasn't right for me. Like, and now I, but not just because idolatry is bad, but because this is what they'll say. But because I know that God will take care of me. I don't have to pray to that statue because I know that God will take care of me. God is good. And I prayed to that statue because I, I thought that I needed to, to, to worship it so that it would bless my life, that it would take care of me, that it would protect me from evil and it would help my family to eat. And then we could build a new house and, and get out of poverty. And like that, so I did those things. But now that I know God, like I don't need that statue. Like that, that it can't talk. It can't hear. It can't see like, like what it's not blessing me. God does. And so here's the problem that, 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 that many cross-cultural workers will do. They'll come in and they'll, they'll point out everything in the culture that's bad. And they'll tell everybody to take away everything that's bad. And what does that do? When you remove something, it creates a vacuum. And so what, are they, what does it do? A vacuum will suck in something else to fill that space. That's the nature of a vacuum. And so if you have not changed the worldview or changed the value, then if you just say, get rid of those idols, it creates a vacuum in their life, but it doesn't necessarily replace it with something better. And in this case, it replaces it with legalism. That doesn't, so what does it mean? Get rid of the idols, it's sin. And yet, what's filling the place of that, that void in their life of, of, but I'm fearful for the well-being of my loved ones, my family, myself. I don't know what to do because someone is sick. I don't know how to feed my family. I don't know how to clothe my family. I don't know how to get out of poverty. I don't know how to escape evil. And all I've done as, all, as the cross-cultural worker is increase that fear. So maybe they've legalistically removed the idol, but they, that hasn't changed their belief. And so I've created a greater problem. Because now they're just drifting with, I did what the missionary said, but I still have this belief. What, what we have to do is teach them to detach from that idol and reattach to God. Well, like in our culture, we're like, well, the idolatry of, of sports and the idolatry of money and career and the idolatry of whatever it may be. And we'll, we'll get rid of those idols. But what we're doing is the same thing. We're not teaching them to detach. Like take the, take the, uh, idolatry of hedonism in our culture. Like I need more money so that I can have more comfort and more security. 
And so I this this I, I pursue this job, and I'm I'm worried about my portfolio and my retirement, and I'm watching the stock market. And well, that's idolatry. Well, what are they? Re- if you remove that, what, what what have you caused them to do? You've caused them to create a vacuum in their life. They're fearful of the future. They're desirous of a pleasant life in the present. But have you taught them to trust God? Here's the thing. You teach people, Americans, to trust God with every aspect of their life, with their present and with their future, with their children, with their health, with their finances, with every aspect of their life. They're not going to worship their careers. They're not going to worship their money. They're not going to be worried about their 401k, and they're not going to be worried about the, the economy, and they're not going to be worried about all the things. Why? And they're not going to be living for hedonism, hedonistic pleasures. Why? Because they have reattached to God, and they have found him to be, uh, to be that which they were looking for through those other things. And this is an example like what we're trying to do. We want them to reattach to God, not just stop idolatry. Like that's the problem with idols, not that they're worshiping this piece of stone, but that they don't believe that God is sufficient. Once you can convince somebody that God can be everything for them, they're not going to replace it with other things. What about another issue we face is alcoholism. Stop drinking because that's bad. When the word says, do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit, stop drinking. Well, we, we want them to stop drinking for multiple reasons, because they it, it's, it's harmful to their health, it's harmful to their families, we want to, uh, we want to see an end to the domestic violence, we want all these, all these things. But all of those things are symptoms of the greater problem. Like with the idolatry, is a simple of a greater problem. They don't believe in God. What is it? The what is the issue with uh, uh, the alcoholism? Well, alcohol becomes a substitute for God in their life. Like it helps me identify with my pueblo. It makes me feel like a man. Uh, it helps me escape my problems. But in the end, those are all ways to avoid the one thing that they really need, that God is sufficient for them. Like, that's what, what Paul was saying. It's not, don't be drunk. And so we, we in Baptist are like, well, that means no alcohol ever, 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 which would have been really foreign in that culture, that concept. Like, even the disciples drank, and I would suggest that even Jesus did. But the the problem with that is, we neglect what Paul says after that. Don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. What is he saying? Like, like the Spirit can take that place of alcohol in the life of a person, but it doesn't end. Like, it can strengthen me to resolve my problems in life, the Spirit. Like, it can cause camaraderie with other people, fellowship, like like the the fiestas the drunken fiestas here like like it has all of the benefits that are unending and undetrimental to society like it's better it's just better be filled with the spirit it's better let it take the over your life it's better and so a discipleship that creates a vacuum but doesn't fill with fill it with god is not a good discipleship so what do we do we tell them to 
love God. Now, what's the issue? We don't have to stay on them not to drink. Like every believer that I know that's been baptized that was an alcoholic beforehand, like we have people in our group that drank daily, were drunks, functional drunks, that when they got baptized, they stopped drinking and have never had another drink in their life. Why? Because they were filled with the Spirit and they realized, I don't need that alcohol anymore. Idols, alcoholism, fiestas, that need for that need in this strong group culture to identify with my pueblo. Instead of saying, don't go to the fiestas, we're saying, serve your people in the ways that you can. But also, find your fellowship in the body of Christ, and therefore we're presenting the gospel corporately, communally, discipleship communally. Where you are the, uh, your, your, your abiding is communal. Your discipleship is communal. All of this is communal. You don't need to look outside of the body of Christ. You have a new spiritual family, even if your biological family disowns you or your group disowns you. So we've created not a vacuum. We've said, yes, you may lose your biological family, but you have a spiritual family. Like we're having them reattach to God things. And so take this away from it, uh, that you can't force it. Like this is something that the Holy Spirit has to do. Like you can teach truth. You just can't convict of sin. You can condemn. That's certainly not what you want to do. But the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. And so if you have presented the truth in a loving and understandable way, then in the end, trust the Spirit to do the Spirit's work. You can't force it. You've got to take your time. All right? Now, notice this. They don't rush any decision. So if they're going to leave an idol or if they're going to stop drinking, or if they're going to, like, they're not just going to halfway do it. Like, when Jesus says count the cost, like, no one starts a barn and doesn't finish it. Like, you got to count the cost. Like, that's a natural value of this culture. Like, they don't just rush anything. They take months of thinking about the cost. They know it when they make the decision. They know what it's going to cost them. So don't, like, just snap your fingers and expect for it to be done. Like, allow them to take time to make the decisions. Consider their communal responsibilities. Like, they, what does their decision to participate or not participate communicate to the culture? Like, here in our, okay, so here in our culture, in our town, there is a large sect that does not believe in the trinity they just they're unitarians they are uh, uh they, they only believe in jesus and they don't believe in the father or the son they believe that jesus is both or all three and uh they're very legalistic and they're very hard on 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 us there's a brother in our group he came out of that his family is a member of this sect and he has wanted to join our group because he believes in the Trinity. But he said something to one of us this week that was very enlightening that we need to hear. And he says, I went to church with my family. That's why he's been missing our group, because he went with his family. It's not that he doesn't believe. It's that he recognizes his communal responsibility, that he is responsible to his biological family. That doesn't change what he believes it changes only our understanding of it. What, 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 what do I mean? Well, 
uh, some believe that because this group does not believe correctly about the Holy uh, about the about about God about the Trinity that they are not saved because they don't believe the right thing about this doctrine reflective of our worldview. Now I'm not saying that that's not that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that's a reflection of our worldview. We have come to believe as word-based evangelicals that if you don't believe the right thing about all the right doctrines, then you're probably not saved. Like right belief is the value that we're looking for. Do they believe the right thing? Now that's not saying that right belief is not important. What I'm saying is right belief is what we look to to determine whether or not these are, 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 are legitimate followers of Jesus or not. I have recently begun to suggest that what, what has made them not legitimate followers of Jesus, not legitimately saved, in my mind, is not the fact that they don't believe correctly, although I, I am in agreement that they don't believe correctly. My suggestion is they don't look anything like Jesus. They don't love people. They don't love God. They don't serve. They're harsh. They're critical. They're judgmental. They don't like, like their lives do not look like Jesus's lives. And therefore I say they are not disciples of Jesus. Like go back to Antioch. They were known as disciples because they looked like Jesus. Here, these don't look like Jesus. They don't live like Jesus. They don't love like Jesus. And so I look at it and go, it's impossible for them to be genuine disciples of Jesus because they look nothing like them, not because they don't believe truth. And so I go back to this brother who's a part of this group because his family uh, raised him in it, but he doesn't believe it, but he's still going. And he said this, I went to church with my family and I'm caught up right now and I can't attend your group because I have family responsibilities. And it's true. This brother's dealing with, their family's dealing with a lot of issues right now, health issues, uh, land territory disputes, like there's a lot of things going on. And what is he communicating? He is communicating that his discipleship is not just about what he believes, but it's about how he lives and relates to other people in his community, specifically to his lost family members. And I go, wow. Well, that tells me he's a true disciple because not only does he believe the right thing, but he's desirous of loving his lost family members in such a way that they see and experience the love of Christ in him. So consider their communal responsibilities. He's not just going to drop his family because they don't believe the right thing. He's going to believe the right thing, but he's going to put orthodoxy in its place and think not just right belief, but right heartedness is the evidence, the fruit that I am a disciple of Jesus. And so this is the struggles that we encounter helping our people See the surpassing greatness of following Jesus Christ, understanding what it means to be a Mistec disciple so that the people of this community don't think that they've changed religions, but that they actually see Christ in them, just like the people of Antioch saw Christ in the disciples in Antioch. So, too, that is our desire for our people here. So uh, I appreciate uh, you tuning in this week to hear, hear uh, how we deal with discipleship issues. I hope that it's been insightful for you, and I look forward to talking to you again another time.